Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name is Christian Allen, here with my co-host, Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I can't complain. I can't complain. Um, when we recorded yesterday, I was a little grumpy over the evaluation of my yeah, house, but yeah. I have since recovered and uh, we're moving on. So I doing like good. It. And I'm super excited today, Rod, because I've been listening to podcasts like all morning. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of gotten me fired up to talk about some topics that I'm seeing out there. Basically, today we're going to do the third part of our Asking Rod the Tough Questions episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to hit on some fun stuff. So okay. from that standpoint, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm excited. Awesome. Well, I'm excited um, too. Okay. Okay. Really quick, Rod, before we, before we kick things off, I just want to remind everybody to join the Facebook group. If they have not, as a reminder, it is investment strategies for high income earners. And we'd love to have you if you haven't joined it yet. Um, questions. If you have any questions that you want us to a- uh, answer on the show, Send them to either Rod or Christian at moneyinsightsgroup.com. Okay, Rod, without further ado, let's get into part three of asking Rod the test the tough questions, which as a reminder to anyone who may have missed the first couple pieces of this episode or this three-part series, um, basically it's been me doing a dive into all things financial like literacy related, right? I've been listening to podcasts. I've been um, reading articles, doing due diligence and finding some of the questions just as I go through it that I think that this will be interesting. Let's talk about this. So we've gotten through a whole bunch of different topics um, from really A to Z in terms of like from a topic perspective. And that is not going to change today, Rod. We're going to be all over the map. All right. So let's get things going. Okay. Here we go. First question, Rod. Should I take money from my 401k to pay off a credit card? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Age old question. That, I mean, as a general rule, I would say no. Okay. Give us some context. What What would be the reasons for yes or no? Okay. I, I would say, I mean, the only reason I would say yes is if you were just like so underwater you you lost your job you don't have a source of income for who knows how much longer to come and you just need to tap into some of those assets that you've that you set aside that were supposed to be for a long time a long distance in the future and you just need to do it and and okay. maybe maybe while you were trying to stave that off you were putting money more more like spending more on your credit card than you would like to have and so the first move you're making is at when you do make the decision to, to cash out a portion of that qualified plan that you use it to, to pay down the high interest credit card. Okay. So you're saying it's a last resort. I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Taking that 10% so question. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Why? Why? Well, sounds like a good idea to me. I've got some credit card issues over here. I want to, I want to get them knocked out. I just, I'm just not comfortable having debt rod yeah but i've got this 401k over there and it just would feel nice to get rid of my debt why would i not make that move it feels like if if it's a if it's an easy answer then it feels like you're feeding a habit like it could be a cyclical thing like on a regular basis oh i'll just keep tapping into that pay it down oh now i have room on my credit card i'll go spend that money again and then six months later, I'm tapping into it again, right? Oh, boy, Rod. This goes back to behavior <laughs> versus the numbers. It totally does. Okay, so but from a no, okay, so let's talk about from the numbers perspective. So yeah. like you talked about, there's a 10% tax penalty. So immediately, you're taking a hit that you wouldn't have otherwise, mm-hmm. right? If you're able to plan appropriately, and we talked about ways to get money out prior to 59 and a half, but, as long, but to the extent that you're willing to and able to plan appropriately, you're obviously able to get more value out of it, right? Yeah. The challenge, of course, is that sometimes we're just 
crazy tough situations. And and I would say this, if I'm if I have a credit card that I'm paying, you know, 22% on uh, and I'm in a situation where I can't do a balance transfer, I can't find a better way out of that, mm-hmm. then maybe you take the 10% tax penalty and the income tax that you're going to take on from that as well. Yeah. And then you take whatever's left over and get yourself into like a safe position. But yeah. I kind of agree with you. Like if it's not, if it's not like dire, just try to avoid it. And I, I'm actually speaking from experience on this one because oh, okay. I've Rod. shared the story, right? Last when year? I... Was that last year? <laughs> Gratefully, no. Oh, okay. Okay. But I've shared the story when I was first working right out of college, making next to nothing, had what probably three kids at the time and it was it was the the least advantageous time for me to be putting any money into a qualified plan because of all the tax credits and and not not a big tax bill to begin with anyway right (laughs) you have to have like a little bit of income and go past like the initial tax thresholds to have any income tax yeah exactly so but i but i'm uh i followed you know the the dave Ramsey's advice. advice Yeah, so it was Dave Ramsey. It was our HR director. She's like, he yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of people. Future, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I'm setting this money aside. And Brad, you had an MBA, of course. You knew that the well at the time I didn't have. Do, oh, oh, to be sorry, fair. Okay, well, Rod, later. you were considering being an MBA student <laughs> at some right. point in the future. Therefore, of course, you knew that the 401k was the obvious choice had in that moment. Be. Yeah, it had to be. Okay. So, okay, but but then fast forward, I put that money aside, and then uh, I'm, I've also shared the story of buying the, ins- the furniture company in 2007, 2008 comes, we're kind of picking up the pieces, and in that process, I cashed out a portion of what I had put into my 401k previously. Okay. Paid the 10% penalty after not really having any tax savings to begin with. Uh, anyway, well, so. okay, okay. So at least, I mean, I don't know if you got some sort of match, like, a, a, or whatever, but at least it sounds like you were able to get value from that, right? So while, and it, and it sounds like you were in a tough situation. So ah, so I, I used it, and and it was, it, you know, again, things, things worked out fine, uh, but just if we're talking general rules, it was, general it was rule. a last result resort. Okay, it wasn't the first okay. place we went. Yep, I agree with that. I don't really have any other any other thoughts on that. I just think in general, avoid taking money from qualified plans to pay off credit cards. Okay, Rod, what do you think about reverse mortgages? Mm. What's your take on a reverse mortgage? Believe it or not, there's some hot takes here. Some people are oh, like, yeah. this is bad, evil, and like, whoo. And other people think it's a godsend because it's, you know, giving some people who wouldn't otherwise have capital access to some so where does rod the pod fit as it relates to reverse mortgages i and i've heard the same like the people that that come to the standpoint of in no situation should you ever consider it Uh, okay so where does that come from i think well actually actually before we get to where it comes from give me your initial take okay my initial take is that you you get you gave the kind of the two scenarios some people say it's it's the worst thing ever some people say it's a god's end i've seen more on the second scenario where it was a very Mm -hmm. beneficial thing for people i'm thinking about uh, a couple who were ready to retire mentally and and just like exhausted yeah and and it was the reverse mortgage that basically made it, I mean, it probably would have been possible anyway, but just put them in a really comfortable place. It didn't create, in, in this exact, in this specific example, it didn't create additional income for them, but what it did is it removed their mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And without having that monthly mortgage payment, the uh, uh, income they were able, that they generated from the other things that they had done to prepare for retirement was plenty to cover their retirement. So, uh, and, and I've seen other situations where people, you know, people get in a pinch with maybe it's liquidity or, or for other reasons, uh, they need more income in retirement. They have the, the house sitting there and the equity in the house, especially in a lot of cases where it's just owned outright. That's like the biggest asset they have. And it seems silly in a situation like that to just suffer instead of 
tapping into this asset that 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 you i mean uh, an objection you often get is well then it's not there to pass on to the kids and my answer to that is so you're going to be miserable living on less than you could just so that you can pass on this house to the kids and when you say it that way then they're usually like oh yeah okay get your point you know what I mean? Well, and and most of the time it's, you know, the kids are also encouraging, we hope, right? Encouraging their parents to yeah. utilize, use their assets and That's not, true. you know, not change their change their lifestyle because they're hoping to to, you know, give some money. I do realize that giving money to people is important. Mm -hmm. Um for some people, that's a critical element, something that they would take a lot of pride in and certainly don't want to take take away from that. But obviously, if it comes down to your own ability to retire comfortably, mm -hmm. live a comfortable lifestyle versus having to scrimp or potentially worse. And in return, being able to give, you know, kids some money, like it seems like a pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah. couple thoughts here. One is there are a lot of misconceptions still about reverse mortgages. I so I tend to fall on the side of that, uh, the side that reverse mortgages are useful when used appropriately mm -hmm. um, and can be very useful when used appropriately. They could bring out, again, they could eliminate a mortgage in retirement and still allow you to live in the house. Yep. They could potentially even bring tax-free income back out of it. It's not taxable because it's coming back out in like a, in a loan, right? Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. it's another asset that when I'm actually taking the money out of it, I'm not having to deal with income taxes. So yeah. from a, from a tax planning perspective, it can be really useful. So anyway, okay, well, where do you think the aversion, like this strong aversion has come from? Because there certainly are strong opinions about like why it's such a terrible move. Yeah, first I wanna clarify a couple things that on the misconception side. One is the, well, maybe I can set some context first because typically the, the person who approaches that is saying, I'm planning to live in this house to, for the rest of my life. Okay. Yeah. So as a starting point that, that needs to be at least the expectation, not that you have to, cause we can talk about what happens if you don't, but that's usually the expectation. And then secondly, I think there's a misconception about what happens to the home or to the kids. Like, the situation they're trying to guard against is if if you take out that reverse mortgage and the ultimate debt that's on the home is higher than the value of the home when that couple passes away, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the whole uh, kind of insurance part of, of a reverse mortgage is that if that happens, there's no burden that passes on to the kids. It's taken care of. There are there's an insurance element built into it that takes care of that possible scenario. And even the possible scenario of like, if, if that was a situation where, where it was underwater, well, at some point there was a crossover point where the debt became bigger than, than the current value of the home. And there's concern about, well, what if they come and they kick me out of my house when that happens? Again, there's this insurance element to it that that And it is happen. a contract. It is like they cannot come and kick you out of your home, regardless of how, like if it becomes underwater and how far it, it, it comes underwater, there's no point where they can come in and kick you out of your house. Right. That's the risk that the reverse mortgage company is taking on by giving that. Okay. I think that's good on the reverse mortgage. Is there any others that you want to, any other misconceptions yeah. you want to hit on? So not misconceptions, now back to your question about, so why, okay. why do people just have this aversion to it? Like, Number one, I think if they understood those things, then there would be less of it. But then the second mm -hmm. piece is that there have been examples where it was maybe misused. Like predatory lending yeah. inside the reverse mortgage space, especially especially early on. Right. So when instead it was less regulated. a situation where they're saying, well, use the reverse mortgage to create income, there were those out there who were saying, hey, you have this equity in your home take the reverse mortgage, take that money and yeah. go and invest it somewhere. And then that's where it became just this wild west of, okay, well, where is it, where is it being invested? And then, especially when it comes back to the reverse mortgage companies and especially the government who's kind of backing that insurance element of it, they start saying, well, 
gee, it looks like we have all these underwater homes. And then when they when they kind of peeled back the layers and said, oh, but they didn't use the money because they needed it for income. They were using it to go out and invest in these things that the investments were bunk or, or you know, didn't well, so, pan out or, or whatever. So the issue here is that when you're dealing with reverse mortgages, you're dealing with people who are elderly primarily. Yeah. And so it's a it's a safety net or like, like they're they're trying to create safety for elderly people who are potentially taken advantage of by um salespeople who want to you know be able to go and invest the money so for example mm -hmm. if it's an advisor who's looking to free up assets he yeah. might be he or she might be looking to get the reverse mortgage as a way to free up assets now can i just tell you from a pure numbers perspective that may not always be the wrong decision having said that the problem i really think that came that came about was just that too many people doing a really poor job, not having people's best interest in mind, and mm -hmm. the combination of those very people oftentimes being elderly and less able to uh, make the kind of decisions that they need to make, right? Yeah. So yeah. so anyway, I think all those things came into play. Yep, agreed. Okay, Rod, number three on our Asking Rod the Tough Questions for today. What's the right age to take social security? This is A. Okay. And B, yeah, we're getting into some some retirement planning stuff here. Okay, what's the age to take social security one? And this is just from me. Should people, let's say under 45, even expect to get social security? Ooh, all right. Those are my two. What does Rod think? Okay, well, the easier question is the first one, at least from uh, uh, my preparedness to answer it. So... It depends. Okay, there what does it depend on? Yeah, there are calculators out there where you can go and you can say, um, if I started at 62 versus 65 versus 70 or whatever, um, what's the difference in, in the total amount that I can expect to receive in, in my lifetime? And the number one uh, piece of information that we do not know in that equation that the calculator is going to ask you is when are you going to die? Right. Well, that would be, yeah, that would be way easier if we could just plug that in. Yeah. Cause the, if, if, when you play around with the, with the numbers, uh, when you get past around seven years, se age 78, 78, 79, 80, right in that, in that time range, the, it's better to wait, take income later because the higher income for a longer period of time just ends up, you get more money out of it. Whereas if you, if you take less by starting sooner, even though you have more years that you received that it's less, which again, so when just you, when, year by year, 90, the gap shrinks yeah. and eventually the waiting would overcome it. If you lived long enough for that to happen. That's right. Yep. And that's really what's happening. So, so from what I remember, and we used to do a lot of this, this has been 15 years ago though. So I'm not as sharp on these things as I once was out of uh, full transparency. However, if I remember right, it was something like an 8% raise for each year that you hold off taking social security. Yeah. So think, yeah, seven comes to mind, but, but yeah, right. Okay. In that okay. Seven, eight, we're, we're in the ballpark, but, but it sounds um, great, right? You get, you, if you wait, you get the raise. Why wouldn't you wait? Yeah. So, so wait. does it ever make sense? Okay. Here's where in, in my analysis, I know we've differed on this a little bit, or at least you've second guessed uh, the, yeah. the, the thought process behind it. But in my analysis, if I'm going to retire at age 62, or I'm already re retired when I hit age 62, and the alternative to taking the income is that I am harvesting assets, I'm, I'm digging into the nest egg to, to have that income instead of taking it from the Social Security, then... I think it makes sense to go ahead and turn the income on at age 62. Okay. okay. Yeah. The reverse of that is if, if I'm working and I'm willing to continue to work beyond age 62. So it's a question of, do I stop working and take the social security or do I even start taking it while I'm still working? Then I would say, no, wait until you're done working and then revisit that decision on, on social security. Well, and they, they ding you on social security, the, the more, 
income you have outside you. of social security. Right. Now, that said, most of our most of our listeners are going to blow so far past like the income numbers that it's probably not going to have much of an impact there. But if you were being if you were let's say, you know, in that maybe $100,000 and under range, the way that you manage social security from a tax standpoint could be pretty significant. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. Um, I don't think I have anything to add, Rod. I think I pretty much agree with what you're saying. I, I actually um, am going to respect your analysis today ah, all and right. just say, let's go with it. Um, again, I haven't been in the nuts and bolts of that in a while, um, but it's one of those things where if you think you're going to live a long time, then you probably want to... Um, wait, hold out as long as you can, as long as it makes sense. And mm -hmm. if, uh, if good genes are not on your side, longevity is not on your side, you might want to consider starting it earlier. Okay. Oh. Hey. Yesterday when we were recording, Oh, sorry. You were going to say something. Go well, ahead. You had the second part of your question. Oh shoot. You're right. I totally botched that rod. The second part of the question <laughs> coming from me, should people, younger people, and I used 45, even expect to get Social Security at all? It's a fair question because think about when when the whole question mark started to come around uh, as uh, around Social Security. See, I don't remember exactly when it was, but let's say about 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Well, someone who's 45 is still another at least 17 years away from where they would start. So think about between now and then what's going to happen. And, and there are going to have to be changes made. And I think this is, this is me just kind of reading the political landscape of, of the direction of things that make sense, right? Like there have been a lot of crazy things that are thrown out there. Like they're going to take away your IRAs. And I'm, I'm not here to say that, you know, far be it for me to tell Washington what they can and can't do. But some of those things just seem so far-fetched. I don't think we're quite there yet as, as far as our, our socialist uh, you know, level. But I think uh, what we probably can expect is if you are successful in, in saving for yourself for retirement and you get to that place and you can produce income on your own without needing Social Security, then it would not surprise me at all if there's some sort of scaling back uh, or, or completely eliminating the social security that you would mm. receive if, if you like where I think that's interesting. I mean, one way or the one way or another with social security being in such a mess, mm -hmm. like obviously it has to be, has to be adjusted. And so the likely outcome is that they continue to increase age, which I, it feels like I read an article yesterday with, uh, um, Congress trying to increase the age of when social yep. security can be taken. Um, but it's going to be a combination of reducing benefits and increasing age until they can get it into a healthy place or just phase it out entirely. Yeah. When it was originally introduced, it was a forced savings plan because yeah. they wanted people to have money when they retired. I think it's going to morph into more of a kind of a social plan to help those you know who, who have less income. Who need it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, and that's a good thought, right? As we get to that point, it's, you know what? Uh, I'm fortunate to be one of those people who don't really need social security. So I'm not planning on it. And if we can do something to help people who are less fortunate and need it, then um, I'm all for it. Okay. Whether okay. you feel as good about it as Christian does, I think it's <laughs> fair to say that if you're in that age range of, uh, I would say even like maybe 55 or younger to, to not plan on it, not plan make, on it. Okay. Okay. To, to have I, I still think if it. you're, if you're 55, you're probably going to get a good chunk of your social security. I think so. If you're 45, Oh, that that's got more question. Marks yeah. Pretty soon it. they're going to have to pick an age where they, again, it's not going to be like a cliff, but they'll yeah. start to phase out of it. And I feel like, that's it's got to happen soon where they start to pick that that age in that time frame. Okay, Rod, we're well, yesterday we when we were recording the second part, mm -hmm. we actually kind of we went through a lightning round. Yes. Um 
and there were nine things on the through the lightning round. I don't want to get into detail on all of them because I have some gripes that I need to get to. Yeah, I'm excited so, about those. Four gripes that I've written down that I think are, are just, it's going to feel so good to get them off my chest. Okay, but the first thing that I do want to talk about, Rod, well, okay, I'm just going to pick a couple of these that I think are most relevant. Okay. So like buying a home or renting, I feel like that's pretty clear. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, we're going to get that one out of there. Newer used car that's out. Um, how about this one though? This is maybe a little bit more interesting, a little more nuanced. Use a credit card or avoid them altogether. I know this isn't normally what we talk about because yeah. generally high income earners don't really need a lot of help and support on how to manage their, their credit cards. I should, I shouldn't say that there probably are a lot, but most of the people that tune into us, are are pretty diligent like kind of do-it-yourselfers savers so yeah. we don't hit on that all that frequently but maybe just hit on it why or why not why do you use a credit card because you said yesterday yes to the credit yeah. card okay yeah so for me it's it's convenience and especially in the on the online world safer than a debit card for example uh so i mean the answer is we do not carry a balance on our on our credit card. We we yeah. Pay so if that's down... the issue, then you don't want you don't want to be building up interest that you're having to pay, yep. right? Especially yep. if it's a high interest rate credit card. But yep. on the other hand, it, it, there's a lot of things you can do. By the way, you get points, and you know if you travel, there's things you there's be, there's all sorts of other benefits that you can get in addition to convenience and safety. So really, for most people it probably makes sense to use credit cards. You Especially, just have to use them responsibly. Yeah. On the consumer side, it's it's easier because the company is paying the fees. Like, and well, I mean, let, let's be real. Like their prices are higher because they're paying, they're, they're charging those fees, but the prices are higher for everybody, whether you pay cash or whether you pay credit card. So you might as well use the credit card and get the benefit of of the higher cost of the product because of the three percent or whatever they're going to pay to visa and and so that's just the convenience of it i don't have to carry cash i have to be concerned about you know if, as concerned if i lose my wallet because i lose my wallet and it has credit cards in there even if you know, or my credit card was stolen they they run out immediately and they start running up bills on my credit card the laws are very favorable to me as the consumer not so much to the com that the store that they fraudulently bought the the merchandise from they're the ones that have to eat that but as the consumer I don't right so all the more reason yeah and then I mentioned the online thing credit card versus the debit card for that exact same reason I don't use debit cards uh, especially with online purchases because if my if my debit card is fraudulently used that's on me it's money that's already gone out of my account and and I just have to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. Rod, here's another one that might be interesting um, okay. because I think we have taken different approaches or, or generally take slightly different approaches. I asked you whether to invest in index funds, mutual funds, or individual stocks. You said index funds. <laughs> Tell me why. Okay. This one was one of those where I wished I, I had had some extra ability to talk about it. So I appreciate the, the comeback on it. Because if someone came to me and just said, what do you think I should do? Or or like like make a general rule or general statement. I, I just feel like for most people, buying an index fund, especially like the S&P 500, just it, it's an easier blanket approach to throw over everybody. Um, but again, it depends on what you're looking for, what you, what you want out of the investment in the stocks. Cause there are, I could, cause I absolutely could make a case for individual stocks. If someone's willing to put in a little bit of time and effort to, to know like what they're investing in, have a, a philosophy that they're following, so to speak, and some discipline around that, then inv investing in individual stocks can absolutely be beneficial. But the way I yeah. took your question was you have to choose one or the other. You did right you had now. To choose one or the other right then in that moment. So yep. you did it. You did it a fine job, Rod. Um, and P 
people who've listened to the podcast know that I like individual stocks. Yeah. Uh, but I also agree that with you that it's not that I like individual stocks to just go and like throw a dart. What mm -hmm. I like about the idea is that I can actually research and be invested in not just be invested in the company from a financial perspective, but I can, I can understand what the company is. I can be in line with it from a, from a philosophy perspective yeah. or a belief perspective. And so I think what happens there is that if you, like you're saying, if you really are that person who's willing to do a little bit of the, a little bit of the research, then finding good companies, it's not hard to do by the way, like mm -hmm. there's a lot of really good companies um, and that's, but that by the way, is what these index funds are. They take the best companies on the planet. They put it into a grouping and say, you're invested amongst all of these. Right. Yep. So I think that there's certainly room for both. Now I will say this, many investments don't even give you the option. So if, if there's a good chance that you're listening and you're like, I've got a defined benefit plan with a million bucks or so in it, but I can't invest in individual stocks, even if I wanted right. to. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. Most, um, especially qualified plans aren't going to give the kind of options to do it, that kind of stuff. So, um, index funds are a good way to create a kind of, um, baseline return and you can feel, you know, pretty safe that the companies that are backing that are at least in the long run going to go up over time. Yeah. Agreed. And if you had asked index funds or mutual funds, I would have chosen index funds on that one as well. Lower okay. costs. Okay. Like more, I think just, just that consistency to, to me. Okay. I won't argue with it. Okay. Rod, I'm going to go away from these cause I got to get to my gripes. Oh yeah. I'm uh, excited. I got to get this. to the gripes. Okay. Oh man. I'm, I'm already, I'm, like, I'm feeling <laughs> excited. Just kind of thinking about getting into this. Okay. First gripe, Rod. My first gripe Actually, I got to give context for this. I, I feel like I should back up for a second. So here's the deal. Um, I really do enjoy like learning from other people and understanding what other podcasts are talking about and why yeah. they're talking about it. So I dig into that stuff quite a bit. And what's fun about it is, and it's oftentimes like I'm kind of comparing and contrasting our views and philosophies with other people's sure. views and philosophies. So yeah. Like I can go into the, go into these and I, I can get really fired up when mm -hmm. I'm like, this just, this just doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. And similarly, I can get excited when, um, I'm finding other people who I really believe are giving like good, um, transparent, honest information that's based on real numbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. That said, I ran across a podcast that. I really struggled with. Now I say struggled with, I thought the podcast was great. Um, they did a nice okay. job from a pr production standpoint, but the content was just such a struggle. I'm not going to call out who, what podcast this is, but the, this podcast really got me going. And, and uh, that's why I want to, that's where I want to go with this. Okay. okay. It, it created the gripe or at least it created uh, the gripes. Yep. First gripe. My first gripe is advisors who suggest that people don't really get to financial independence early um, and that you should just invest in the market, work hard at your job, and it will eventually work for you. In fact, I heard a quote, their quote was, anything that's valuable takes a really, really long time. Hmm. Okay, so here's the deal. Like the old man conservative, like I can hear like my grandpa's voice saying like, yeah, you got to work hard for 48 years, put that money away and, you, and you'll get there. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I believe that that's true. So like from that standpoint, I'm not disagreeing with it, but what I get frustrated with is when people start to suggest that the idea that you could accelerate that path is ridiculous or mm -hmm. not possible, mm -hmm. Ugh, man, that gets me fired up. And the reason it does Rod is because we have so much proof. If we look through our client base, we have an unbelievable amount of actual proof from existing people who have accelerated their path by investing in alternative assets. And yeah. so like having seen it be right in front of me and then hearing people say like, no, this doesn't really work. That doesn't make sense. You just need to you know, stick with the long haul mm -hmm. and that's going to be what gets you there. Now, 
to be fair, Rod, that's okay for the right person. I'm not saying that that's not a path. Sure. But man, my gripe here is when the suggestion becomes it's not even really possible or that it's like a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. Like you should leave that behind and just go with the stuff that we do. Cause that's what I'm really hearing. Right. I'm hearing advisors say, I don't get paid if you invest in alternative assets. I do get paid if you invest in, in mutual funds. So I think you should go to mutual funds, but they're not saying that part out loud. Right. Okay. And I think a uh, very common thing that is, implied or and sometimes outright said it goes back to our the first episode we did when we talked about fiduciaries yes and that's exactly what we're talking about by the way yeah. we're talking about a show and a firm who are fee only advisors but focus on stocks bonds mutual funds that's what they teach and that's how they Makes that's sense. how they make their money through fees from helping people manage those products and, and other financial planning fees. Yeah. And as most of the people listening to this know, uh, we are often speaking, most often speaking to people who are high, are high income, fit into that uh, maybe smarter investor, able to Certainly do more sophisticated in general. Right. Like, the, right. like the average baseline is a little more sophisticated. Because when you go from where they are living, where it's a very highly regulated environment, the SEC tries to stay on top of things and in, in the way that, that things are marketed and all this kind of stuff. When As opposed to when you move to the alternative space where uh, it can become more of the wild west obviously there are there are regulations if, if you're you know getting involved with the right uh types of you know people who are who have offerings out there then you know and, and you're an accredited investor etc then um i think you're okay but when well, it's there's uh, light regulation as a, but but you're right there isn't the same kind of regulation it is a little bit more of the wild west in some ways but the question is, is that good or bad? Well, my suggestion would be that if we if we look at the deeper the government gets into our financial, the financial areas of our life, like mm -hmm. that generally hasn't worked all that well. I mean, when you look at the things they're managing. So from my perspective, if I can manage more of those things, if I can make those decisions, um, while I do feel like it's important to have some regul some like regulatory oversight so that people aren't just doing whatever obviously transparency integrity are are really critical components but from my perspective i like that there's less regulation because it creates more opportunity but it also does create more responsibility for me as the investor which by the way is why you're required oftentimes to be an accredited investor yeah. and there you're you're basically taking on that risk. Yep. Totally agree. Okay. That's my first gripe, Rod. Number okay. two, this one, this one I actually wrote down like a couple, like, Oh, I guess it was about a week ago. And so this one, I'm not as fired up about this one, but, um, I still thought it was interesting and it just kind of, maybe we can get you there. there. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. So here's what they said. I said short-term savings, anything less than five years. And this was the Always. He gave it to me twice. Always, okay. always needs to be in a savings account or savings accounts. And I was just like, what? This was on like a prominent uh, personal, personal financial planning podcast. Hmm. So it wasn't like it, this wasn't like something I just pulled out of the pulled out of the sky. Rod. This is like real stuff. Here's the deal. Uh, there's way better places to put your your short your money that's short term savings than a we talk about life insurance all the time. And obviously the traditional planners don't like life insurance because okay. that's not how they get paid either. Particularly if they're in the fee only space, whereas life insurance works on a commission basis. So like they have, they have zero interest in sharing that, but, but anyone who's like listened to us and worked with us knows that they can just have their, their emergency fund sitting there in their policy, earning 5% yeah. tax free. And, just why wouldn't you? Why right. wouldn't you? Oh, you can also leverage that to create a death benefit. And so like, it's just one of those things that's kind of a no brainer when you understand it. And yet they're making it sound like anything outside of being just hyper, which I say hyper conservative. 
dividend paying whole life insurance is about as conservative as it gets. Yeah, right. So anyway, it, again, this one isn't like, I'm not feeling as passionate about this one right now. I just would let people know that if they're hearing like, Hey, short-term savings has to be like ultra liquid and right there. Uh, I think to an extent that's true, right? If I have like, I probably immediate access to money. I need to have it in a checking account or something like that. But, but even like your, your short-term emergency savings can create more benefit for you than just sitting there creating peace of mind. It can still earn interest and create value. There's nothing wrong with that. That's my take on it. Yeah. I, I see that evolution in a lot of our clients. When we talk about with the investment optimizer, especially this idea that you're instead of just saving all of that money that's going to go into investments in a savings account, put it somewhere where it can do something for you. And when they catch that vision and then they see it happening, then they also they start to look at the other money that they have typically just sitting in a savings account. And they feel like, well, why why shouldn't I have that yep. money working for me as well? And so uh, then they can dual purpose the insurance policy, still use it for the investing, but keep a, a minimum threshold of amount of, of liquidity that they want to have in there for that exact reason. But wait, Rod, I thought that that cash value life insurance was bad all the time. That's what they tell me. Okay, that actually brings us into our next gripe. All right. This is my number one gripe, and it's because um, we are experts in life insurance. Mm. And uh, so this one's just like, this one gets me at my core. Ready for this? I'm ready. Advisors who act like they know life insurance, like they know how life insurance works when they really don't, makes me absolutely (sighs) bonkers, Rod. I cannot tell you how many shows I listen to about when they go and do their life insurance and the misinformation is just rampant Mm -hmm. and it's unbelievable. Like there's like, usually what ends up happening is it's more a barrage on the idea of being someone who sells something or is an agent and receives a commission. So that's like the starting point. Like it's automatically bad if there's any commission associated with it. You can't trust anybody who gets paid a commission. Nope. You can't, you can't, there's just no way to do it there. You can, you can sell somebody on an ongoing fee. Uh, but, but if you get a commission, that's just like, it's over and I get it right. Like it's a sales point. So one of the things that these firms have done the fiduciary advisor, like, uh, which again, I sound like I'm against fiduciaries. I think fiduciaries are great. What I don't like it as is a selling point mm-hmm. or basically the marketing pitch to suggest that I'm more honest than other people because of that. Anyway, we've been- And I know everything about everything and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. They're fee-only advisors. They they act as if they just know everything about anything financially related. Mm-hmm. And so they come in and they talk about it. Well, I'll give you an example. How about this? Okay, Rod, um, I'm listening to an episode and they're kind of riffing on how much they dislike cash value life insurance and why it never makes sense to do it. And in fact, they're going so far as saying, gosh, we have this client who, who, or we see, we sometimes see clients who come to us and they say, gosh, I got, I, I bought cash value life insurance. What do I do now? I, mm-hmm. I, I'm just in this horrible pickle. What can I do now that I've bought this awful life insurance stuff? Um, okay. So, so again, the, the way that they're couching it is basically that a hard and fast rule. In fact, I think they said in 99.9% of all situations, they don't think cash value life insurance is, um, useful. And Rod, I'm telling you, I hear that. And I just think like, that's gotta be malpractice. Cause if those guys get into, even if you don't like our strategies where we, we use it to create tax-free income and we use it to enhance the investing that we're doing. Like, mm-hmm. even if you don't like those things, like you, any competent advisor would have to know the very clear and real benefits of using life insurance from a charitable planning perspective or from yeah. an estate planning perspective. Like it's just ridiculous, even from just a life planning perspective. Yeah. Right. Like how many of those guys have seen, have, have seen, clients who got to that stage in life, let's say that they're retired 
and they don't have as much money as they thought. And guess what? If something happened to them, their spouse still would need additional money if they if if they were to die prematurely. Yeah. So it just makes me crazy. Okay, but I do want to get into an example. Okay. So they're riffing on life insurance and and specifically going into the be your own bank concept, mm-hmm. which by the way, they they know enough to be dangerous about, but not enough to speak intelligently about. Here's the deal. They start saying, really the be your own bank concept doesn't make any sense at all. Life insurance is just one of many vehicles that I can just leverage and borrow against. And it's the same thing. They're like, I can do that with real estate. I can do that with a, with a stock stock a brokerage account on a margin loan. Like they go through these four or five things and they're like, it's exactly the same. And mm-hmm. I, in my head, I was thinking, I was thinking, Oh my gosh. This hurts first. <laughs> and second of all, it made me think, okay, we should go through, maybe we'll do a show on this and we'll go through and we'll do a compare and contrast for each of those different vehicles in mm-hmm. comparison to what life insurance is. Now, again, life insurance isn't right for every situation, but let's call every, like, let's call things what they are. Does yeah. that make sense? So yeah. in the margin loan example, I'll roll through this. So if I have a brokerage account, I can borrow against my account. Normally, mm-hmm. if I have a high enough balance, they'll they'll allow me to use what's called a margin call where I'm just able to borrow um, money at whatever interest rate they give me. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a, a handful of things that are very different between that and life insurance. The first one is that it's a stock account. Okay. So one of two things is likely happening there. I'm likely either invested like I would be invested otherwise or I've gone to a cash position, right? So yeah. if I'm invested, the problem with borrowing against an, an account that I'm investing and trying to earn a 10 or 12% return is that I could end up upside down on my account. I could borrow money and then have the loan called because my investment account went down and suddenly I find myself in a difficult position. Well, when we talk about uh, enhancing investing, like the last thing that we can afford to do is screw that up. So- yeah. So anyway, from like, from that's the first thing. And then can you I, just look can I at, comment on that really quickly? Yeah, please. The l- lender knows that too. And so a an, uh, kind of result of that is that they won't lend you as much on that account as they will the life insurance. With life insurance, we can get up to about 95% of what you have in your cash value. On that yep. broker's account, they won't get let you get more than usually about 50%. Yes, that's a the big value. difference. Again, they didn't even suggest that. They didn't even mention it. Yep. They, in fact, what they said was that life insurance has no liquidity. They did. And yeah, I'm thinking funny. like, oh my gosh, I can't even, I can't even stomach this <laughs> because anybody that understands it knows that that's exactly the opposite of what they're saying. Um, okay. So you can tell Rod, this gets me pretty fired up. Yeah. I do have one more gripe Okay. and then we'll call it a day. My final gripe is, is kind of an add on or a build on from what we've been talking about, but it's. Again, going back to traditional advisors who make people feel stupid for asking the question, what else is there? Mm. And what do I mean by that? I just mean that so frequently um, as we go through like the investing, the investment journey, and this is what we see from people, right? We see the reason that people come to us is, is oftentimes because they started in the traditional world, they worked their way up. And then they got to a place where they started to have a desire to look for other things, more greater opportunity, more effective, more efficient ways to accomplish the same objective. Right. Yep. So, so what I, man, I was just listening to this. When I was listening to the show, I I was like my, I I don't even know what to say, Rod. I was just so furious because your blood was boiling. My blood was boiling. That's what I'm looking for. My blood was boiling because this dude, He's literally saying to people, like, why would you do that? And and his his defense was make them explain to me exactly why they're doing it. So it was just like, okay, if I go to you and I say, Hey, um, Joe Schmo advisor, I decided that I talked to Rod and Christian and I decided to buy life insurance. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news is, is anybody listening to this and anybody that works with us would have a really good idea as to why they did what they did. Yeah. Um, but the point that he was trying to get at was just trying to challenge people far enough that they 
would just find themselves in a difficult position, throw them out of whack and basically say, if you don't understand it, therefore what? Therefore it yeah. must not be, if you don't understand it completely, then it yeah. must be bad. The, the same thing applies as a, again, it's, it's life insurance, but it's also alternative assets in general, because again, they don't sell those products and services. Therefore there's a massive, and again, these are fiduciaries, right? They have to do what's in their best interest. Well, Rod, let me ask you this. If you are, if you are compensated for doing one thing and not compensated for another thing, is it possible to even be completely unbiased? Like, I just don't think it is. Uh, I, so was, anyway. I was a communications major in my undergraduate, and it is impossible for anyone to not be biased. I, so, remember, I, I did a double negative there. Everyone is biased in some way. <laughs> Everyone is biased. You're right. Well, I, I, and again, I'm just listening to them say like, hey, I'm a fiduciary. I have to do what's right for the client. And then I thought to myself, how the hell do you know what's right for the client? Well, and, and here's the other thing. Is it safe to assume that when they're recommending that they that the person participate in their 401k or or buy a mutual fund, is it fair that they are completely educating them on every element of that so that if the next advisor were to ask the client, well, tell me about the mutual fund that you're invested in. Oh, well, it's called this. Well, do you know what they're invested in? No. Do you know what the fees are? No. Do you, is it possible that you're investing in something that you don't understand? Oh my gosh. I thought the same thing. When I was hearing that, I'm like, we could all do the same thing. Like the, again, it's just frustrating because another, another, element that always pops up is this idea of salesmen. Like if you sell alternative assets, if you help people build wealth through alternative assets, mm -hmm. if you sell life insurance, then we're going to like, you give pitches to people, you sell, you don't plan. Um, you're right. There's no such thing as, as working together to create a plan. Yeah. You're just always delivering a pit. Well, anyway, Rod, I, I'm going off on all these tangents. You can tell it gets me fired up. Um, but those are my gripes. So thanks everybody for listening to my gripes. Is there anything you want to add to it before we close no, up shop? This has been great. Okay. As a reminder, <clears throat> two, we we want we're asking you to share the show with two of your friends, not three, not one two of your friends and uh, we super appreciate everybody for listening to the podcast and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the money insights podcast to learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show. Please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the money insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial tax or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.